This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Hey everyone, Boomer Esiason here. The NFL Draft is behind us and your favorite team is now gearing up for week number one. The free Odyssey app puts you right in the middle of the pro football conversation with the biggest sports radio stations from across the country. The local voices who know your team the best, giving you their unfiltered takes on the current state of your squad. It's always football season right here on the free Odyssey app. So the final fiscal year numbers are in for the crisis at the southern border. And the numbers are horrible. In total, Customs and Border Protection recorded 3,201,144 encounters along the borders during fiscal this fiscal year. That figure represents an increase of 434,625 over fiscal year 2022 and a five-fold increase, five times the number of fiscal year 2020, which was the last full year of the Trump administration. September of 2023 set a new monthly record for illegal entries with 341,392 encounters. And here to talk to us about it is Mark Morgan, senior fellow at FAIR and former acting director of ICE and Customs and Border Protection. Mark, welcome to the show. Noel, hey, thanks for uh, having me. And if you don't mind, if I could add to a couple of statistics for your listeners, in the first 35 months of this administration, there have been over 8 million total nationwide encounters. Think about that. 8 million total nationwide encounters, plus another 1.7 million known gotaways. The former chief of the Border Patrol said that's underreported by 20%, so we're well over 2 million total gotaways. Right now, we're experiencing 7,700 uh, 7, 7, illegal entries on our southern border alone every day. They're releasing almost 5,000 a day. ICE has 40,000 illegal aliens in custody, and CBP has 17,000 in custody as we speak today. Yeah, it's a crisis. It's a disaster, regardless of what the secretary lies and tells the American people. Yeah, it's amazing that no bad, and no matter how bad the numbers get, they're never willing to admit that there's a crisis. In fact, to the contrary, they point out because they're deporting Venezuelans back to Venezuela that all things are good. I mean, it's right. I I mean, they they, they create this crisis, and and, and I love it, Noel. Like every every single time, they'll set a a, a record. Like two months ago, they set a record, the highest monthly total in our nation's history since we've been keeping data since 1924. And then the next month, there's a little bit – it's a little bit down from the highest monthly total ever, and they're bragging about the departure. I I mean, it's absurd can't make it up. I've had at least 15 texts a day. When are you going to talk about the fact that there was a reduction in the month of October? You know, it's like you text back. Well, you had an all-time high in September. And 
And, of course, we've had a couple of cold fronts that move through, and, and when it gets cold down there, what happens? It, it slows yeah. down, right? Exactly, but, but I'll tell you right now, it, it, it's not slowing down. Usually this time, this is the time where we see a slowdown. Not necessarily hit or miss. It's not necessarily a significant or drastic slowdown. But as you said, there's generally a slowdown. I'm not seeing it. The last two months, it's been over 8,000 per day. There's absolutely zero slowdown right now. And again, this is the time when we generally see that. And again, just so everybody understands, we, we, literally. And oh, by the way, last month, even though it was like I, it's just a few thousand, uh, uh, less than the month before, which again was the highest monthly total on record. But this past month was still over 300,000 total nationwide attack counters. It still was the highest month for October in our nation's history. There is no room for them to brag or claim any uh, modicum of victory here. It remains a disaster, and it is a disaster. The pressure seems to be mounting by Democrats on this administration. Mayor, Mayor Eric Adams has done some absolute, some incredible things. Free one-way tickets to anywhere in the world from New York City. Uh, it's a sanctuary city, but, uh, you know, they, they are uh, now cutting police funding, Department of Health funding, Department of Education funding, pre-K, uh, early childhood development funding, uh, and the list goes on in order to make up, because they have to uh, post a balanced budget, they have to make up billions of dollars spent on the illegals that, that have migrated to the sanctuary city, and now the rest of the citizens of, the, of that city are suffering. And, he, and and he's a joke. And here's why I say he's a joke, because this is the same mayor that's opine. This is going to destroy New York City. Right. He's come out with all the strong rhetoric. But what does he do at the same time? He blames the crisis on, quote, these are his words, quote, the madman from Texas. Right. Think about that. New yeah. That's who he's blaming. He, he won't blame the Biden administration. He won't go to his state's, his city's legislator and get them to reverse course on the sanctuary city laws of his city that that's acting as a magnet for illegal aliens to come there. He won't go out against President Biden, who he he created this crisis. He took the most secure border in our lifetime and intentionally unsecured it. You won't have the mayor doing any of that. But yet he'll opine that he needs more money to deal with the crisis rather than take the money and reverse course on our open border policies and secure the border to stop the crisis from coming. He wants more taxpayer money to deal with the crisis after it's already come here. It's absurd, and that's why I say he's a joke and he's not serious. In the state of Illinois, Springfield, the capital there, J.B. Pritzker sending money to Brandon Johnson, the progressive mayor there, in order to set up a gatekeeper model to be able to better analyze uh, what resources they need to heap upon uh, these individuals. This has just become a big money spend, and a lot of the folks finally, both in New York City and in Chicago, pushing back. In fact, his popularity, the mayor there, is dropping precipitously. Look, there's two very important things. Uh, the Federation for American Immigration Reform put out a study a few months ago talking about that literal 
money that it takes in certain categories, uh, 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 education, uh, medical, uh, other welfare or benefits are going to illegal aliens. That's in excess of well over $180 billion, Noel. That 180 with a B, billion dollars just for that core group of services. Well, then Mark Green, the chairman of the House Homeland Security, just committed his fourth phase, uh, uh, completed his fourth phase of a five-phase inquiry looking at the dereliction of duty for Secretary Mayorkas. And that fourth phase went above even what the FAIR uh, uh, research did and really talked about the total cost, right, the total cost of law enforcement. Like, for example, you mentioned New York. It's cost New York $700 million in overtime for NYPD just to deal with the illegal immigration process. And they took all that into consideration. Over a half a trillion dollars, it was it's the total cost of illegal immigration uh, that, that's being borne on the backs of U.S. taxpayers. A half a trillion dollars right now, Newell. This is absurd. It's unsustainable. And that's why we keep trying to educate the American people. They've got to force the reverse course in the open border policies. So meanwhile, um, the Biden administration is uh, asking uh, members of Congress and others, I guess, and I guess they're trying to figure out how to do this by executive uh, order or privilege or whatever, uh, to give work permits to undocumented immigrants that have been in this country, in some cases, decades um, that have been living below radar here uh, and now all of a sudden work permits is going to be the panacea solution to everything correct because that's the problem right now when they when they're when they're letting in you know again millions and millions of illegal aliens everything is overwhelmed so, and it's it's clearly it's not just about the border towns and city and states right so it's why we say every state is a border state it's why you see the same issues playing out in chicago and dc and new york and every other major metropolitan city and including other smaller communities throughout the united states well and this is a sincere problem part of the issue is when they get here illegally there is a time period before they're actually allowed to work here legally as they're going through their asylum process. Well, what they're trying to do, again, instead of coming up with a strategy that we did under the Trump administration of deterrence, to deter those to come illegally and file false claims, all they're trying to do is make it easier on the back end. So their solution, rather than secure the border, rather than eliminate, deter, or reduce illegal migration, all they're trying to do is get better, more proficient at giving them a, a panacea of rewards and benefits quicker and more effectively on the back end after they've already been released in the United States. And then they feign why they don't understand why the, the, the numbers keep increasing. And we've seen the highest flow of illegal migration in our history's lifetime. Mark, help me out here, though, uh, because th- there's a disconnect, or, or maybe I'm just ignorant of how this is going to ultimately work out. So a lot of folks who have been here uh, and have for years undocumented, they don't avail themselves a lot of social services because they're because of the fear over the years of being deported. Because they can't establish residency here, they got they've got nothing from an immigration perspective, right? What happens when you you give them the work permit? Haven't you kind of waved the magic wand and 
and a lot of these issues go away and then they're actually in a better position to avail themselves of 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 social programs and so and, and assistance here yes um, yes uh, yeah that, that, that's exactly and, right but what i would say th- go ahead i'm sorry and then we then we then we get more upside down financially right now and then you know the the they come out of the the shadows of of society in a much stronger way because we've actually kind of waved it, that magic wand and legitimized them. And and look, I'm I'm not trying to be insensitive, but we can't afford what's happening now. And and it seems as though some of what they want us to do is going to increase our cost and increase enrollment in schools. Uh, increase the number of people showing up at ERs because there's safety when you wave that legitimacy wand. Am I I all wet on that analysis? No, no, you're you're, you're not. You're not. What I would add to that, though, you said something that's very important about, hey, you didn't want to be insensitive. Here's what I think is part of the problem. And I've been saying this for a long time. One of the greatest strengths in this country is our compassion. But when it comes to border security and illegal immigration, well, we've allowed our compassion to be hijacked. This isn't, there's nothing insensitive to enforcing the rule of law. There's nothing insensitive to securing our border and stopping illegal immigration. There's a cause and effect. People act like illegal immigration doesn't have a downstream, a negative effect. Like there's no downside to illegal immigration, but there is. When you have millions of those that are illegally entering, working the rule of law, our sovereignty as a nation, that pulls border control resources off the front line. We literally hand operational control of the cartels so they can push drugs, criminals, and national security threats across our border. So illegal immigration does absolutely impact our nation's safety and national security, number one. But number two, after we release and they remain in the country illegally, I, this, is, this is the disconnect. We are consumed with, with not being insensitive, but, but that leads us to looking the other way why people are actively in violation of the law of this country. And we look the other way and continue to give them resources, and we treat them as citizens. And then we wonder why we have people that are continue to come illegally into the United States because there's no consequences. There's no deterrence. In fact, at the end, we're giving them more rewards every single day. And we wonder why the flow continues. We wonder why resources are pulled off and the cartels are laughing all the way to the bank as our nation's safety and mass security are being jeopardized. Senate Bill 4 passes both chambers of the te- of the Texas legislature, and it creates penalties for illegal entry into Texas and authorizes the removal of illegal immigrants apprehended at the border. It also gives Texas officers the ability to arrest anyone who they believe has crossed into the state illegally. And uh, this has um, met with a lot of resistance. Uh, Mark, Folks are saying that this is unconstitutional as a result of the Arizona case. What say you? I say just the opposite. Um, you know, look, it, there, there's going to be some challenges here, but let's put this in perspective. This is exactly why I think you and I have talked about this, Noel. This is exactly mm-hmm. why I've been saying what's happening at our border is a multi-layered set of issues. It's both a humanitarian crisis. It's a border security crisis. It's a, it's a drug, criminal, national security crisis, but it's also a constitutional crisis. So here, I've been saying this really since day one, is that there is Article 4, Section 4, Article 1, Section 10. All your, all your listeners, look it up real quick. Just Google it. It'll take you five minutes. Those are the two constitutional sections that are articles that are at play here. 
The first one, it, it gives the government, mandates the government has the responsibility to protect all states uh, from threats outside its borders. And if and should the federal government, for whatever reason, fail to, to uh, 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 meet that constitutional mandate, then the states have what I refer and what a constitutional scholar referred to as the self-help remedy in the Constitution that they can then protect their own state. That's why U.S. v. Arizona doesn't apply here. U.S. v. Arizona is very clear-eyed in that the states cannot enforce federal immigration law. But when a state goes to the Constitution and avails themselves of the self-help remedy, it takes it out of U.S. v. Arizona, and now it becomes a constitutional issue. I hope and anticipate this is going to go to the United States Supreme Court, and Governor Abbott is going to be on the right side of this issue. Section 4 reads as follows. The United States shall guarantee to every state in this union a Republican form of government and shall protect each of them against invasion and on application of the legislature or of the executive when the legislature cannot be convened against domestic violence. It's the one you're talking about, right? That's exactly right. And think about this. It's very important. So, so the governor has already declared an invasion. And so he's, he's already taken that step. So he's already moved it out of U.S. v. Arizona and moved it into the constitutional realm and argument. Now, I've been saying since day one, and I get this, because don't get me wrong, Governor Abbott has done more than any other government in, in, in any state in this country. But what I've been saying is, since he declared invasion, the one thing that he needs to do is detain and remove. Because until you start removing those that are illegally entering, the flow will not come. And now through the statutory language, he's taken one step closer. And I get it. The, the reason why is he was concerned that any trooper or any National Guards person that actually detained and removed, they potentially could be sued, both civilly and held personally criminally liable for acting outside the scope of the authority. So through this legislation, through the Declaration of Invasion, these are all putting stops in to provide a level of protection for those that actually start doing what needs to be done. Now, what's really ripe is that AMLO and uh, Mexico officials are completely verklempt with this, right? They don't know what to do with it. I mean, they're just like all over the map. But if you or I cross the border illegally into Mexico and we're walking down the street, they would stop us. They would ask us for our papers. And when we could not produce them, they would do what? Exactly. I know it's a rhetorical question, but it goes it goes even beyond that. No, this, this is a president, Amlo. This this man? Are you kidding me? I don't understand what what he says of should be of no moment to any citizen in this country. Mexico has not been a true partner of the United States for a very long time, and we should stop pretending like they are. The, 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 this is a president who's who's oversaw a country that basically large sections are failed narco state. It's one of the most corrupt governments on the face of the planet. He creates a not only does it create a pervasive environment for, for one of the largest, most prolific, violent criminal organizations to operate in the world, but he also profits from it. And his government officials profit from it. And he's allowing that entity to push a vast set of complex threats across our border, jeopardizing and, and, and just causing havoc to our nation's safety and national security. So forgive me when anything this man says is of no moment to me. It's just amazing to me because every country that is would would be um, impacted by this decision by 
Governor Greg Abbott, would treat Americans in the exact same fashion because their exactly. immigration laws don't allow you to do what we are allowing them to do, and they're complaining. <laughs> That's exactly right. And keep in mind, though, the reason why, the reason why that you're hearing these comments from AMBO is because it's the, Ill, the profit from illegal immigration is significant for his country. Not only sure. the remittances, right? So the people that are here in the country illegally are sending remittances back to Mexico, which which is a significant part of their GDP. If we took that away, we would absolutely devastate their GDP. Not only that, like I said, the, the profit from corruption, for the, the uh, illegal immigration alone, the cartels, it went from a $500 million uh, annual business in 2018 to a $14 billion dollar annual business right now and a good portion of that goes right back in the pockets of corrupt mexican officials yeah well i guess abbott will sign that this week or maybe next week and hopefully we'll see what's going to ultimately happen we know that there's a bunch of activist groups waiting in the wings in order to try and file lawsuits uh in, in, in order to do. stop this uh from moving forward and maybe we'll see this move through the courts and get resolved one way it, uh, finally you know, I mean, obviously, yeah. a lot of these questions have not been resolved just yet. Mark Morgan, thank you so much for joining us. Appreciate your time, your insight. Have a great Thanksgiving uh, vacation. Appreciate it, sir. You too. Thank you. All righty, folks, that's Mark Morgan, senior fellow with FAIR and former acting director of ICE and Customs and Border Protection. We'll be right back after the break, 504 260 1870. Uh, Joe Jeruso joins us when he is a council member in New Orleans District A. We'll get the latest on the Wisner Trust. Stay with us, folks. Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Hey everyone, Boomer Esiason here. The NFL Draft is behind us and your favorite team is now gearing up for week number one. The free Odyssey app puts you right in the middle of the pro football conversation with the biggest sports radio stations from across the country. The local voices who know your team the best, giving you their unfiltered takes on the current state of your squad. It's always football season right here on the free Odyssey app. Welcome back, folks. Joe Jeruso, New Orleans City Council member, District A, joins us for the latest on the Wisner Trust lawsuit. Joe, welcome to the show. Thanks, Noel. So, Joe, um, I know that the district court ruled in favor of the position held by the city council. The um, appellate court overruled. Is that correct? And now it's That's correct. To Supreme, and now the Supreme Court has just granted writs. That, that's correct. So if I can, I want to take a step back and maybe give a little history of what's happened here so everybody can understand how important this is. In 1914, uh, Edward Wisner left 50,000 acres of land in trust in, in Jefferson Parish, St. John the Baptist Parish, and Lafouche Parish 
with the city being the primary beneficiary and to receive all of the trust assets 100 years later, so in 2014. And then ultimately, without going through all of the history and boring your listeners, um, the beneficiaries got spread out to include Charity Hospital, who has a small percentage, LSU, um, Tulane, Salvation Army, and the city, which owns about 35% of, of the beneficiary uh, as, as a beneficiary. And then the uh, air themselves got 40% of what happened uh, that was remaining from their role as a beneficiary. In 2014, the trust expired. The city litigated that the trust expired, and as you said, the, the Intermediate Appellate Court, the Fourth Circuit, ruled that the trust expired in 2014. I, I think over the next several years, the city thought about and, and tried to work on how to wind down the trust, that is, put everything back into the city. And at some point in 2020, the mayor entered into something called a ratification agreement that essentially said, forget about the trust being dead, even though it's been dead for six years now. We want to maintain this beneficiary status I just laid out forever and ever. And that really was a problem because we view all of the assets the 50,000 acres of land, now 38,000 acres, belonging to the city. And it's important because one of the crown jewels of this is Port Fouchon, where oil and gas is is treated and 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 it has a significant value um, if marketed correctly. So rather than having a 35% piece of the pie, we really view that the city should have the full 100%. So after trying to work this out and not being able to reach an agreement with the city, the council sued the beneficiaries and the mayor as the trustee and LSU and Tulane Salvation Army, sort of in a nominal capacity, and said, we believe that we're entitled to 100 percent and that this purported ratification extension is what's called an absolute nullity, just meaning nobody could extend it, and very simply because just like a human being is dead, if a trust is dead, it can't be revived. And as you said in the lead-in, the district court agreed with us um, about the fact that we had the right to bring the suit. The heirs claimed that the council did not have the capacity to bring the suit. And so for your listeners, what does capacity mean? Well, think about if you're a child, you can't bring a lawsuit. You don't have the capacity to do that. So your your parents have to bring a lawsuit on your behalf. And same thing true if somebody has um, a, a mental challenge, they may have somebody else bring a lawsuit on their behalf. And, and the same thing is true for corporations, limited liability companies. They have capacity to bring the suit. Well, the heirs claim the council did not have that capacity. The trial court agreed with us that, of course, the council has sued and been sued for years. In a very strange opinion, the Fourth Circuit, the intermediate court said, no, the council does not have capacity to exist separately from the mayor that collectively were the city. Now, Noel, without 
trying to, to get, again, too much into the details here. The decision doesn't make sense because the council, first of all, is responsible for passing ordinances and making sure the budget gets appropriated and passing laws. So how can you not have capacity to do that? We also have the ability specifically in the charter to hire our own council separate and apart from the mayor. So how, again, can you have a capacity to hire a lawyer, but you can't be represented? That doesn't make any sense. And of course, as, as the public has seen us do lately, we've, uh, we've started and initiated investigations and had subpoenas. So this argument that we don't have capacity just doesn't make sense. So we took the issue up to the Supreme Court. All seven justices signed on, as you point out, calling granting the writ. And without obviously trying to foresee what is going to happen, uh, if the Supreme Court disagreed with our position, the very simple thing would have been to just deny our appeal and say the Fourth Circuit is right. They did not do that. So we're waiting to see what the results are. And of course, we're going to put our arguments forth both in briefing and at oral argument that the trust is dead. Somebody has to have the capacity to to challenge that the trust is dead, that the council has the ability to do this, and to go forward with trying to make sure all of those assets that belong to the city are properly returned. 35% of something isn't bad, but 100% is obviously much better. Absolutely. Joe, I don't know if I've ever asked you this before, but the the ultimate agreement that was entered into by Mayor LaToya Cantrell, the heirs, and all others no public hearing, no meeting, no public meeting done behind closed doors. Was that confected in writing, or is it just a continuation of of what ex- existed prior to that meeting? There is, as I understand it, there is an actual written agreement. Um, and, in fact, it was it? attached. I it I reviewed it at some point and I will tell you I have the petition open it's a, it's attached as exhibit C so I I I did not see it until much later after the fact and in fact that's what spurred all of this happening is us learning later down the road and not in real time that this that this happened so it was much after the fact would have been the first time I saw the ratification agreement so was there anything fundamentally different in that agreement than what was had been the practice beforehand? There wasn't anything that was fundamentally different except for the except for for what our view is the most fundamental disagreement of all, which is right. The trust died, and so yes. why should the city be accepting 35% rather than getting a full 100% of what it's owed? Uh, I don't remember seeing anything in there that was radically different than what was proposed before, but I think, again, our view is if, if you can have 100% of the pie, you want that as opposed to nearly a quarter, uh, nearly a third. And as I recall, just for the benefit of the listening audience, it's clear in the city charter that the mayor does not have the authority without council approval to enter into such of a uh, set of that, that's, cor- that's correct. The, the reason, as I understand it, why is uh, anything that involves a movable property, and that's the fancy lawyer word for um, – 
property that is land, um, land has to go yes land as opposed to a table or a desk uh, which is movable property has to go through a process uh, with the city council so in other words to alienate dispose do something with that property the council has to participate and that did not happen and and i think the other really most fundamental thing for us is it's one thing to argue about did the trust expire did the trust not expire that question's been answered the trust expired in 2014 so why do we want to artificially extend its terms on on a favorable basis for many people who don't even live in the city who aren't paying property tax on this when in fact this whole asset really belongs to the city of New Orleans and it's a valuable one at that so in many cases what we have here the net effect is really a prohibited donation because we're giving money to individuals that are not entitled to receive it they may have been at one point in time but not now right that that that's exactly right and we we could no more give away city hall to somebody than we could give away this type of asset that is, is valuable and and again what, what we want to do is i don't think any of us knows exactly the value um, without evaluation, knows exactly what should be done with it. Should we continue to lease it? Should we sell it? Should we try and market it in a different way? But what just makes the most sense fundamentally is if it's generating, let's just pick a number, between 8 and $12 million a year in income, why do we only want 35% of that? There are so many needs in the city where we can be putting the money to something differently and not having it go to, as you said, um, a prohibited donation to to a third party. Uh, It it should be for the city and for our residents instead. So to carry this forward, if y'all issue whatever to the mayor and she just ignores it, what their basic – what the heirs and others are basically saying is that y'all could never file like a mandamus action or anything else, uh, possibly not even a declaratory judgment. You couldn't even ask the court to look at the document to see whether or not it meets legal efficacy. So, so you, so y'all would have less rights as elected leaders of the council, um, Y'all, y'all might be over there with the immigrants that are coming across the southern border. Y'all, you, you know, you can't say anything or do anything. And you don't have to answer that. But, I mean, you know, well, I mean, it just, well, it well, just but seems I think, to me to be crazy. Well, it, it's, it's, it doesn't make sense in, in the sense that you're raising the, the point that, that I was saying earlier, which is right on, which is let's say we pass a law, whatever it may be. Uh, no parking downtown Sundays for Saints games for whatever reason. We that's that's the law that we passed. Okay, uh, hypothetically, and the administration just says, well, we're not going to enforce that. So then we're stuck. Nobody, we can't enforce the law. We can't get in there and change things. And 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 of course, the problem is we're 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 closer in the sense that all the residents have a stake and the laws or ordinances or the code that the council has passed, but particularly if the council has enacted something and it isn't being enforced, 
then why do we not have the ability to ensure that enforcement is happening, number one? And then number two, you're burdening residents with having to take up that action instead. And the appellant's briefs are due on December 11th. The respondent's on January 2nd. So it looks like there's time already set, and this is moving forward. It's moving forward. We're ready to put this to bed and make sure, hopefully, the people of New Orleans get what they deserve. Joe, thank you so much for joining us to provide the update. We know you're busy. Uh, Please have a safe and a wonderful uh, Thanksgiving holiday season with you and your family. Same to everybody, and to you and to everybody listening. Take care. All righty, Joe. Thank you so much. That's Joe Geruso, Council Member, District A, New Orleans City Council. We will be right back. Stay with us, folks. Folks, every Monday at 4, it's time to second guess with Bobby Bear and Mike Dettelier at the Silver Slipper Casino. Seven games remain for the 5-5 five and five Saints that stake their claim. We'll be right back. Hey, Rob Bradford here. I have set out on a mission with my good friends at FanDuel to prove what I have known for some time. Baseball isn't boring. Now I have a daily podcast to prove it with some of the most notable people in the baseball world screaming baseball isn't boring from the mountaintops or at least agreeing to come on our show. Players, managers, GMs, and yes, even the commissioner of baseball, Rob Manfred. It has been a constant wave of baseball's most powerful voices. So join the revolution. Subscribe and soak in baseball isn't boring. Listen on your Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcast. You'll be glad you did.